maybe if you're like me, um, you can have uh, too much of a good thing, right? Um, you can say, I don't want any more. Um, so maybe, for example, maybe um, your, your, uh, your wife or your husband or one of your parents makes a meal. Um, anybody ever have that relative that you have to eat not only what was on your plate, but also like the things that weren't on your plate and then more of it. And then until the food is gone, you're eating, right? Anybody ever have friends like that? Um, I had a friend like that, and um, he's the one who taught me that um, ice cream is the perfect dessert because there's always enough room for ice cream. It always fits around whatever else you've eaten. And so um, I will not tell you how much you weighed, um, but he was that kind of a friend. And so uh, sometimes we get to the point in life where we think we have enough or we have too much uh, of a certain thing, and so we say no to others. Last week, as we opened up the book of Matthew, what we did, um, and if you didn't get a chance to um, watch or listen to the introduction to the book of Matthew, that's available on our podcast or on our YouTube channel. You can go to hbcmonroe.org and you can find all of that information there. And so uh, I'd encourage you, if you missed last week's message, um, to go back and really get an understanding of the book of Matthew as a whole. And so in Matthew chapter one, what we did, the very first part of the book is a list of names, what we call a genealogy. And what's interesting about this is the people that Matthew included in the genealogy or the, the ancestry of Jesus. Now, one thing we didn't talk about a whole lot last week was some of the contrast between, uh, there are actually two genealogies we find in the New Testament. One we find in the book of Matthew, and then one we find a couple books over in the book of Luke. But the two of them have a little bit of a difference. Um, and what many scholars believe is that the book of Matthew is a kingly record. And so this is the uh, throne being passed down through the kingdom of Israel. And so after David, it goes to Solomon and it goes down on through the kings of the Old Testament uh, until it finally lands on Christ which Matthew paints Jesus as the coming king or the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is set apart for a purpose. And so as we come into chapter number two, chapter one has set the stage for this king to arrive. This king whose name will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This king will be called Emmanuel because he is God with us. And so we press deeply into what those things mean and how they apply to our lives today. But as we open up to Matthew chapter number two, uh, what we find immediately is a contrast. Chapter two begins uh, telling the story and says, okay, that sounds good. Everything in chapter one, yay, hooray, happy feelings. And then in chapter two, there's opposition. And so immediately there are those who would seek to contend the title that Jesus is being given by Matthew. So Matthew makes three big claims in chapter number one, and then he introduces in chapter number two those who would be standing against this king. And he begins with this. Watch what happens. He says in chapter number two, verse one, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king. So who's the king in chapter two? Herod. And so we find immediately there's this king, but now, wait, hold on a second. We've already got a king, and his name is Herod. You see, Herod was um, the ruler over Judea at this time, Judea being the region that Jesus was born in. And so he's the ruler over this area at the time. And so immediately Matthew introduces him and says, now in those days, after Jesus was born, he was born in the days of Herod, the king. And then at the same time, as this false king is on the throne, 
Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And so what we find is we find immediately this king introduced and then these wise men. Now, Matthew was written by a Jewish man to a Jewish audience, primarily. And none of these men in chapter 2, verse number 1, are Jewish. Herod is not a Jew. Herod is uh, unrelated genetically to the Jews. And said Herod is actually being, he's been placed on the throne by the Roman Empire. He's been placed in control by those who are Gentiles outside of the kingdom of the Jewish ancestry. And so Herod now is on the throne and he's being contrasted here with Jesus. And then we see these wise men that come in. Uh, but watch and watch what happens with these when these wise men come in. You may be familiar with this story in verse two says saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay. At face value, this seems like a reasonable request, right? So they said, we saw the star. All right. That by itself, we'll get into in just a minute. That might be a little bit unusual, right? Um, uh, we've had four kids and no one's ever shown up at the hospital saying, Hey, we saw the star. Congratulations. Um, that's just not how it works. Any moms in here experience that? No. Okay. All right. That's not how things work. But aside from that, if there's a king that's going to be born, where do kings come into existence at? Where do kings live? What do they go in a, in a palace, right? A throne room, a castle, a capital, a place where the ruling happens. And so if there's a new king, who's the logical person to go ask about the new king? The current king, right? Maybe it's in this household. So this is what's interesting about the Magi or the wise men. We're going to get to that in just a little bit more in a minute. But they know that something is happening, but they don't have all the details. And so they go to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, and they go to Herod and they say, Herod, we heard that there was a new king born. Now, Herod has not received word of this new king being born. So what do you think Herod's response is? Well, there's an internal response and an external response, right? Internally, what do you think's going on? Uh, excuse me? Um, if you know anything, if you study um, the history of the area at the time, Herod and all of the Herods, Herod is actually a title, um, all of the Herods uh, were very, um, maybe we can say insecure. <laughs> and they didn't do well with competition. Um, they didn't really care for that very much. And so what we know is that Herod and the others of this dynasty, they push back against the Messiah. They push back against any king, in fact. Anyone else wants a chance to rule? Uh, that's not how it's going to be. In fact, the title of king was given to one of the Herods because they went to the emperor and they said, hey, you know what, emperor? Uh, we know we're not at your level, but you know what? We'd really like to be called kings. And so their official title was king of the area. But what we find next, watch what, watch what happens. This is the external response of Herod. We really see both the internal and the external in verse 3. You see, Herod the king heard this, and he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so what's happening here? He goes and he goes to the chief priests and the scribes. These are two different groups of people. One who was uh, responsible for the priestly work. Um, and one who the scribes, these are the lawyers. 
Um, as we go through the book of Matthew, we're going to see these two often described as the Sadducees. These were the primary priestly class of the day. And the Pharisees, the religious students, the, the lawyers, those who studied the law of Israel. And so we find these two groups um, that are brought together, even though most of the time they're pretty hostile towards each other, that Herod comes in and says, hey, what do you think and what do you know about all of this? And he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And then watch, watch what happens. Watch what happens. Because they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And this is a quote from the book of Micah, chapter number five, verse number two. Um, really a paraphrase. He says, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Israel. And so what we're actually seeing here, and this is what, what I want us to understand and what I want us to, uh, to catch as we set the stage for chapter number two or the beginning portion of chapter number two. What's happening here is a, we have to take some steps because this is a cultural difference. Um, none of us lived in the first century, right? No one in here, no one here is first century, right? Um, most of us in here are not Jewish. And so this background is a little foreign to us, but what's actually happening is there is a sharp contrast being brought between these two groups of people, between the wise men who are seeking after Jesus and the religious leaders who have all of the knowledge that they need about Jesus. Uh, Because think about it this way. When the Magi, the wise men came to Jerusalem um, they didn't understand it. They didn't know where he was going to be born, did they? If they had known where he was going to be born, they would have gone to Bethlehem based on this passage. The Old Testament leaders knew this, but the wise men didn't. And so the wise men, they didn't understand the deep things of God. They didn't understand these details and everything. They weren't a scholar of the Old Testament. But they were following after God, weren't they? Unlike the Jewish leaders who knew all of the things, had all the head knowledge, had all of the expertise, these magi, these wise men, were seeking God with what they did know. And you might say, well, I mean, the, the stars thing, okay, is that some astrological, what do we, we don't really know still today a lot about the star. People have some guesses about the star. Um, But the Old Testament tells us over and over and over again, not to try to judge by the stars. We're not trying to tell fortunes. We're not trying to do those things. Those aren't the way that God has decided to speak to us. God speaks to us through his word. But now, kind of in the irony of all of this, we have these Jewish leaders who had the word of God and knew the word of God who were doing nothing with it. And then in contrast, we find these wise men that had some understanding, but not a full understanding, yet they were seeking after God. And so what we see very first in this chapter is that the religious knew the scriptures, but the magi followed them. The religious knew the scriptures, but the magi followed them. 
us here today, as we're sitting in this room, there are some of us who we've haven't missed a day in church for who knows how long. Some of us, church is just not in our pattern or our routine. Maybe we're trying to get there, or maybe we're just here today. You see, the thing that we find here in the book of Matthew is that we find immediately this contrast, this, uh, this kind of irony between those who knew what was right to do and those who were actually doing it. We have to be very careful, church, as we grow uh, comfortable with the Word of God and familiar with the Word of God. Because if we are not careful, what can happen is we can become like these religious leaders. Where the Word of God is something we've heard and we've heard and we've heard and we've heard and we become so comfortable with it that we no longer see the need that we have to actually follow it. And this is something, if if you're a little uncomfortable with that, we're going to see it a lot in the book of Matthew. Because over and over and over again, these religious leaders are brought to the forefront. And Jesus often has very little nice things to say about them. Because they spent the whole time studying the law, but they missed its purpose. They missed the mission of God. And so they go and they look at the law as a list of things to do and not to do. And they look and they compare themselves and say, Lee, look how I measure up. And this person doesn't measure up because they have not fulfilled these things. And that's not the design that the law had. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But what we find here at the very beginning is that the religious, they knew the scriptures, but the magi are the ones who actually followed them. And in verse six, watch this. Uh, This is the prophecy that they are actually citing to Herod about where the Messiah would be born. He says, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And you see, this is, um, this is actually a little bit of a paraphrase. If you go back and read Micah chapter 5, verse number 2, it reads a little bit different than what you see right here. But I want to pull out a couple of things that I think are really fascinating in this verse. Because as they pull out Bethlehem, Bethlehem is not a city um, that is known for its size and its impressive uh, demeanor. There's nothing really big and upscale about the Bethlehem that existed as Jesus was born there. Today, we know that city in Israel because of Christmas, and it's the birthplace of Jesus. Um, but Bethlehem, it was really just a small agricultural shepherding community out in some of the, uh, the rolling hills on the side of Judea. There's nothing really fascinating about Bethlehem. Bethlehem is an average, ordinary city in every other way. The thing it was best known for in this day was that David, the king, had come out of Bethlehem. But really, aside from that, there wasn't much to speak of of this place. But as he speaks of this, he says, there no means the least among the rulers of Judah. Why? Because from you shall come a ruler. Now this is significant because the people in Jerusalem and this day and age that were ruling over the people of Israel were not from Israel. Israel in this day and age were a subjugated people. Israel was being ruled over by the Romans, first and foremost. They were a part of the Roman Empire. 
But not only that, now underneath him, you have Herod and you have these local leaders, Pilate, who we meet later in the book of Matthew, who was a governor over the area. And so these men are enforcing their will onto the people of Israel. And Israel feels about that probably the way that you would feel about that. They weren't really fond of this Roman rule. And so they're constantly trying to shrug off the Roman occupation and these rulers who are here being over them. And so the promise comes that, hey, there's going to be a ruler from you. One of your people are going to be on the throne. It's not going to be a foreign power. It's not going to be an outside influence. It's going to be one of yours. But not only that, watch what he says. He says, who will shepherd my people, Israel. And again, this is a contrast, not just with Herod, but now with the religious leaders. Because the religious leaders have no interest in actually shepherding the people of God. A shepherd is one who comes alongside and who leads in a specific direction, right? And the people of Israel were not being led by these religious leaders in any healthy way. The religious leaders were imposing on them what they should do and how they should behave and how they should act and and putting pressure and weight on top of the backs of the people of God. And so it's being contrasted here once again. He says, there's going to be a ruler that's going to come and he will shepherd my people, Israel. And so what we see again is a contrast as the leaders ruled the people, but the Messiah would shepherd them. Uh, The leaders who ruled the people, but the Messiah would shepherd them. And even still today, we understand Jesus as being the good shepherd. This is one of those uh, titles that he gives himself. As he speaks of uh, the gentleness that he leads with, the humility that he leads with. See, shepherds are very different than kings. Um, kings are what? When you see a king, they're, they're lofty. They like to be respected. They like for you to understand their position and their power and their authority. Shepherds don't have any power or position or authority. Shepherds, in fact, they're like, they're, they're kind of outcasts of the culture. They were like, uh, that's the, the worker. That's the, the person who's out there in the fields and they don't really smell great. And they don't really look that great. And they're kind of, uh, not really paid that well. And so those are the shepherds. They're the them and this is the us and good luck. But here the Messiah is being painted as a shepherd. And I want us to understand that the shepherd is a, is something that is, uh, what does uh, David write about the shepherd in Psalm 23? Who does he say is his shepherd there? He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he praises God that the way that God leads him is like a shepherd. That he cares and that he guides and that he directs his steps, his path, and his life. You see, now we have a shepherd who has come to be with us. We have a shepherd who has come to be among us, one that would guide and direct, and one that even seeks after those who are lost, Luke records in chapter number 15. And so we see that contrast again between the religious leaders, those who knew the scripture, but their knowledge of the scripture without actually following through with it, built up a calloused and a hard and a stubborn heart. Meanwhile... The one who would come was going to come and lead in a totally different way. And then let's keep going. Look at verse number seven. See, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. 
And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And so outside, he's giving the assent. Outside, he's saying, this is a good thing. This is what's taking place. I'm excited about it. And then verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gold, frankincense, myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so again, we see the stark, stark contrast between Herod and between these wise men. Because Herod, what did Herod do as he heard about it? He gave lip service, right? Um, But how does the saying go? Talk is cheap. And so Herod says, hey, I'm in. I want to worship this guy too. I want to serve this king too. But behind those words, some things were happening in Herod's heart. Herod was troubled. Herod was insecure. Herod didn't want to give up the comfort of his position, of his throne, and place his faith in another king who needs this king anyway. And so he instead rejects this message while on the outside pretending to go along with it. And then he says, when you're done, come back and tell me where he is so I can worship him too. And then even while all of these things are playing out inside of Herod, these men, these wise men go and they bring gifts to Christ. Now, here's the thing about these wise men. These wise men, I mentioned before, these are not Jewish. Um, we don't know exactly where they're from. All we know is the East. But the word that's used here to refer to them as Magi um, is pointing to probably one of a couple cultures. Um, either the Babylonian culture or the Medo-Persian culture. If you've studied biblical history, or if you followed us, um, we went through a series through the book of Esther. And we talked about some of uh, these things that exist in that day and age. Both of these cultures, both of these empires were ones who had ruled over and oppressed Israel for a period of time. So that's these men. These men are wealthy by this larger culture's standards. These men would have no concerns in a natural world about a Jewish child being born, whether he has the title or the lineage of a king or not. But instead of scoffing, instead of rejecting, what we find is that they actually come to Christ and they actually come and they kneel, they bow before him. We see these gifts. The gifts are things that would be given to those who are in authority, those who were royalty. They would come before kings in this culture with a gift to present, to try to win their favor. And so we find these wealthy, educated foreigners traveling to this little podunk town in rural Judea to kneel before an infant, a toddler, a king with no palace, a king with no throne, a king with nothing externally that's worth mentioning. 
You see, through the book of Matthew, Matthew is trying to help us to get our expectations in line. Matthew is trying to orient us towards the rest of the book. He's showing us who Jesus is by making these big claims in chapter 1, how he's the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. He's the fulfillment of the promise to David. He's the fulfillment of the promise of the new covenant where he says, I'm going to take out your heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to take your sin and I'm going to separate it from you. Uh, I'm going to, I will remember your sin no more. It'll be forgiven through the one who will keep this promise. And so in chapter one, we see that Jesus would come and he would save his people from their sins. You see, our sin is something we cannot save ourselves from. No matter how strong we are, no matter how influential we are, you can't legislate it away, you can't work it away, you can't will it away, you can't do any of those things. But our sin that separates us from God is one that only can be overcome through Jesus Christ. See, Herod's sin and the sins of the leaders in this chapter is not just, um, uh, not all, just all the external things that we see. But really what they're doing is they're elevating themselves above Christ. They're saying, I'm sufficient. I don't have a need for another king. I am good enough. When we study the Bible, we find on repeat the way that God views earthly kings. Over and over and over again, these kings are set up as a picture of you and me in our own kingdoms. And we like our kingdoms, don't we? We like our own domain. You come to our house and the heat or the air conditioning is set on what we wanted at. And the remote is in our hands. And we might give you the opportunity to get something out of the fridge, but it's because we said, hey, you can go grab something, right? It's our domain. It's our place. And we don't like others interfering with our place, do we? We like to put our walls up and have an area that we are able to control. And Herod liked that too. I'm the king of Judea. There doesn't need to be another king. There's rumor of another king. I better figure out how to get rid of that. The Jewish leaders, they said, oh, you know what? We're not the kings, but at least we have influence. At least we have some authority. At least the people like us and the culture respects us. And we are in control of that. And we can unify the people by hating Rome and trying to overthrow and push back against that. But then Jesus comes into the scene. This infant that was promised. This humble beginning. And none of the powerful want a king like that. None of the powerful are drawn to this child. Except the the magi. And Luke, he paints a picture of the shepherds coming, right? Uh, those who are, so the Gentile, the poor, the foreigner, who are the ones that are coming to worship Christ? The ones we expect? No, not the religious, but those who are lost. Because that's where the heart of God goes towards. And so what we see throughout this chapter is that those who should believe are put to shame by those who do. Those who should believe are put to shame by those who do. You see, Herod was familiar with Jewish customs. He had ruled there. His father had ruled there before him. And he had known about these things. Um, In fact, 
um, and that day and age that they're living in. Um, and you have, it's called the religious practice of the day is considered second temple Judaism. Um, and there are even those that call this, this is Herod's temple. Uh, it's the temple that was used during the period of the Herods. And so he knew Jewish religious law, even though he was not a Jew himself. He understood the things that are taking place or should have understood the religious leaders. They had studied all of these things and they had all the head knowledge of all of these things. And then yet at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, the one who's actually following after God are the ones that you and I would look at and say they would want nothing to do with this. The nation of Israel had been waiting for centuries, for millennia, for the Messiah to come. And then when the Messiah was here, so many wanted nothing to do with him. Throughout the scriptures, the Bible makes it very clear that it's not just a book for those who would view themselves as religious. It's not just a book for those who would want to do all of the right things. And we should all be grateful for that. Because the fact is that none of us are good enough. But that's why Jesus came. Jesus came. He didn't come to make bad people good. He came to dead people like you and me to make us alive. You see, the Bible tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. That our spirit is dead. We are stillborn spiritually. We don't have the ability to do enough good, anything like that. We don't even have the ability to do on our own. And yet the word of God and the spirit of God through the good news of Jesus Christ that we call the gospel brings us life. You want a proof? You want a proof that we're not enough? Just look around your life today. I think all of us over and over and over again, if we're honest, we see our shortcomings, don't we? We see our failures. We see our weaknesses. We see where we cannot suffice. You can't be God. And that's a good thing, right? What do we say? We ask your neighbor if they would want you to be God. If you can't figure it out yourself, I'd tell you they don't want that. But here we find God with us. Emmanuel. Jesus. The one who would save from that sin. So our question today is really is in some way, shape, or form, our question every week is what are we going to do with Jesus? What are we going to do with Jesus? How do we respond to him? Do we respond to him like Herod the king responded to him? I'm a good enough king. I, I don't need that. Do we respond like the religious leaders and say, hey, psh, who, needs, who needs another king? We've got one. He's not the best, but he's fine. Who needs another one? Or do we respond like these wise men who sought out Jesus? Because you see, when you understand the beauty of what God is doing for you through the gospel, it's not enough just to have an intellectual assent to Jesus. But you're going to want to behave like these wise men do. You're going to be hungry for the truth of the word of God. You're going to be hungry to know who he is and to walk with him. When there's a sacrifice that's necessary, we look at it, we say, okay, God, you're calling me to this and, and that's fine because you are what is worth it all. Understanding that earthly kingdoms, they fall apart. They crumble, they erode. Hey, the end comes to those 
But he's sitting on a throne that will never end. And in fact, the closing words of the book of Matthew, he says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. There's no time that comes that Jesus is not with you. Your job might come to an end. Retirement accounts, they, they can dry up. Things can happen. We understand that physical things change and they move and relationships can be damaged and they, they come and they go, but, but Jesus doesn't. In fact, the author of Hebrews tells us that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So our question is, what king do we want to serve? Do we want to serve the king of kings, the one who is always the same, the one who desires to shepherd us and to save us and to come into our lives and forgive the sins that we cannot erase on our own? Or do we want to try to keep serving the things that we've kept serving? Do we want to try to keep doing things the way that we've always done them? Again, how's that working out? The fact is, is that we can't be enough for God. But he is enough for us. And really the truth that we see is we see that the heart of God is near to those who are near to him. The heart of God is near to those who are near to him. James writes this in chapter four, verse number eight of his book towards the end of the new Testament. God promises this. He says, God's going to draw near to those who draw near to him. That's where God's heart is. Not necessarily always to those who have heard and heard and shut their hearts, but You want to draw near to God? You want to come to God? He's there. He's present. He's not standing afar off and saying, prove yourself, test yourself. Do this. Do that. He's saying, hey, I'm here. I'm ready for you. I've been waiting for you. Just like the prodigal son, the son who wandered away from his father. When that son chose to return, what did the father do? Did the father throw rocks at him and say, get out of here? Did the father say, hey, kiss the ring and bow and show me that you mean what you're saying? Humiliate yourself for me? What did the father do? He said, I will humiliate myself for you. And he he lifted up his garment and he ran towards his son. Just culturally unacceptable in every way. And he said, son, you don't have shoes on your feet. Here, take these. Son, you don't have a coat. Here, take this. Son, you're my son. You, you need this ring. You're a member of my family and my household. And maybe you're sitting here today and you've been, you've been just on repeat reciting the speech that you would give coming back to God. The, I'm so sorry, God. The, the God, I just, I don't know. Listen, the father is going to cut you off anyways. That's what happens in the story. He says, no, 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 no. You were gone. Now you're back. You were dead. Now you're alive. You see, the gospel isn't about how great of a prayer you can pray or how great of a repentance you can demonstrate. It's about the gift of God through Jesus Christ for you. And so whether your life looks like Herod, where you've built up your own kingdom and you said, I can do this on my own. Whether your life looks like the religious leaders and you've done all the spiritual things, but not let God break through to your heart. Or maybe you're like these wise men where you were far from God. You weren't even in the same, same time zone. You're not even in the same, you're not playing the same sport. You're nowhere near him. But you feel God drawing you and pulling you towards him. It doesn't matter. God's desirous of all. 
But what matters is the way that we respond when we feel God moving and God drawing us. You see, he's near to those who come near to him. And so today, you can walk out of here just as far from God as you walked in. That's the decision to make. Or today, you can say, God, break me down. God, you've been wearing on me. God, I understand that you're the one who makes life worth living. And so the question today is not who is worthy of it. The question is, how are you going to respond to the one who's worthy of it.